Mark 13, verse 1. And as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples saith unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answering said unto him, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Or as Matthew puts it, there shall not be one stone here that shall not be thrown down, not one upon another. Well, our subject is Christ describes the end of the world. And I'm hopeful that uh, unusually we shall proceed through the entire chapter to give a bird's eye view of Christ's teaching concerning the end. And the way his great statement of last things is constructed, we can see it really under two major headings. We'll have three. But there are here two mountain tops or peaks in this chapter. There's a huge mountain peak with the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the Jewish era of privilege in AD 70. And that is predicted, as we'll see, and that is one peak. And then there is another mountain peak at a distance, way down the centuries of time, at the end of time, and the second peak is the return of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, and end time events. And both are presented here in this chapter as peaks. And you must distinguish between them. One is soon, near-to-hand prophecy, and the second, far greater peak, the return of Christ, is the distant one. And if you read the chapter carelessly, you can get the two separate events mixed up. But if you read it carefully, they're two distinct peaks of prophecy. And that's how we traditionally see them. Well, the Lord had twice commented upon the coming destruction of Jerusalem. He wept in the temple. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest all those who come unto you. Your house shall be left unto you desolate. And then he'd spoken more directly of the destruction of the temple. The disciples have got this in their mind. This is only the previous day. This is the last week of Christ on earth. And as he leaves the temple after his last discourse, they're amazed, of course, at the structure of it. It was a, a remarkable, a wonderful place, Herod's temple. It was built to the outer wall of stones of marble, up to 40 feet in length and very deep and wide. 
expertly fitted together. The whole of the eastern side of the temple appears to have been covered in gold plates. And when you left the temple and you went up the Mount of Olives opposite the temple and you sat on the Mount of Olives as Christ did subsequently with his disciples, that's where most of this chapter is spoken, you looked across at the temple and in the sun you saw the gold side. It must have been an astonishing sight. And the disciples had this on their mind. All this is going to be destroyed. All this is going to be left desolate. When, they wanted to know. When, they hadn't uh, counted on this. They hadn't thought about this. The destruction of our temple. When will it happen? In their minds, it must surely be at the same time as the end of the world. When will this happen and when will all these things, the end of the world, Matthew perhaps makes it more clear, and Luke also, when will this great event happen? No, the Lord will say, not one event, two separate events. The destruction of the temple, which is relatively near to hand, and the end of all things, and the return of Christ. Why are we going to study this from Mark's Gospel? It is, after all, the shortest account. Well, because we're studying Mark's Gospel. Matthew's account is so long, and Luke's just provides statements which help illuminate the whole events, the history to come. But Mark's gospel, of course, is is a tract. It is a gospel tract. Mark does not go into the same length as Matthew or even Luke. He's only taking what is really directly connected with the message of the gospel. And that makes it very helpful to us to study it from Mark's gospel. If we're going to do chapter in one address, because it is shorter and it is condensed. Well, let's begin, and we come to verse 2. Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another. In AD 70, when Titus, the Roman general, came to Jerusalem and destroyed the city, that literally happened. He built great structures of wood around the temple, And he loaded them with inflammable wood and he set light to it so that there would be intense and fire for hours. And the great marble stones were cracked and broken and they could be more readily smashed up. And they were smashed up and they were removed, most of them, and cast into the brook Kidron down in the valley. Everything was taken and the city was smashed and raised to the ground and people suffered terribly. Why was it allowed to happen? Why should there be such destruction? Well, there was rebellion and war against the Roman authority on the part of the Jews and they had to be crushed, had to be punished. 
the Roman Empire was relatively peaceful if all was well, but rebellion was crushed with great violence and cruelty. And the Jews, they had rejected Christ or the bulk of Jewish people. And now in AD 70, their uh, temple and their worship was to be brought to a close. But then they went, walked to the Mount of Olives, verse 3, and as they sat upon the Mount of Olives, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, just four disciples, the three who were in the inner circle, plus James, plus Andrew rather, asked Christ privately, tell us, when shall these things be? What shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? Sign in the singular. What shall be the sign? That makes it doubly clear that they think all these things are going to happen together. They'll only need one sign for the end of the world and the destruction of the temple. No, no, the temple is going to come first. But Christ replies in verse 5, Take heed, lest any man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. He's telling them about the end of all things. What does this mean? People will come and say, I am Christ. Are we to interpret this absolutely literally? As is what people will claim, I am Christ? Or do these words cover generally all false, supposedly Christian religions? Where people say, I have the message of Christ. This is authentic Christianity. I am the representative of Christ. Rather like the Pope of Rome says, I am the vicar of Christ on earth. You have to regard me as you would regard him. Would that not come under this prophecy? Is it absolutely literal that we're waiting for somebody or people in the plural to say, I am Messiah? Or does it mean I represent him and speak for him? Is it speaking of the proliferation of false Christian religions? And there are many, not only the cults, supposedly, supposedly Christian cults, but they deny the eternal sonship and glory of Christ, but also many whose doctrine is fairly close in some ways to orthodox doctrine because Christ speaks later of even the elects being deceived. How are we going to be deceived unless this person or these people are adopting to themselves fairly sound Christian sentiments. But there are fatal flaws, which mean they're phonies and they're false and they're misleading masses of people. So perhaps we're to look for throughout time and especially towards the end, a proliferation of false representatives even within evangelicalism. We're summoned to watch, to be vigilant. And many will be deceived. 
And verse 7, when you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, there will always be wars and rumors of wars. Be not troubled. Don't think this is the very end. For such things must need be, but the end is not yet. However, they do mean something. Look at verse 8. For nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. I think that means that ethnic nation will rise against ethnic nation and empire will rise against empire. I think by kingdoms is meant here empires. And that's, of course, exactly what was happening in the world of old, as the prophet Daniel predicted. The uh, Medo-Persians rose up against the Babylonians and overthrew them, and then the Greeks overthrew them, and then the Romans overthrew them. I think that's when, what's meant by kingdom against kingdom by contrast with nation against nation. But that's a supposition. And there shall be earthquakes in diverse places and famines and troubles. That'll happen throughout time. But listen, these are the beginning of sorrows. Just the beginning. They'll go on and they will be especially prevalent is the implication in the last days, these are the beginning of sorrows. And sorrows, the Greek word translated there, sorrows, is an interesting word. It occurs only four times in the Greek New Testament. And the meaning of the word is birth pangs, birth pains. What an interesting term. Famines and various troubles, earthquakes. These are the beginning of the birth pangs, the universe struggling and striving, as the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Romans, for liberty, for the return of Christ. And they'll be much more prominent at the end. Verse 9. But take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils. In the synagogues you shall be beaten. You shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. Well, we have a twofold ministry. When the Apostle Paul was brought before Felix and Festus, he gave his testimony. He spoke of Christ. The first purpose of our speaking is to witness to people that they may be saved. The second purpose is to witness to them that they may be judged. They must be told. And when you're hauled up before authorities, you tell them how Christ has dealt with them, you. And you tell them of him. It may bring about their salvation. And if not, when they stand in judgment... It'll be a witness against them. And that part of our testimony is mentioned here, for a testimony against them. And then a great sign of the coming of the end. We haven't distinguished the first beak yet, 
but a great sign of the coming of the very end, the last, the greatest peak, the return of Christ, verse 10, the gospel must first be published among all nations. Now, as you read these verses, you realize that you're talking about something that's going to happen a long way off. There'll be wars and rumors of wars in the plural, famines, pestilences, earthquakes, other troubles, floods, and so on. These things will go on. They're only the beginning of birth pangs. So the great part of the prophecy, the coming of Christ, is way down the centuries. And then here's a special sign. The gospel must be published throughout the world, everywhere. Well, that was a long way off from the perspective of the disciples. So they're being educated here that all things will take a long time to be accomplished and come to pass. But now, in, uh, we'll come down perhaps to verse uh, Uh, 14 when ye shall see this is now the first peak of prophecy the first event but when ye shall see the abomination of desolation well this is terminology from the book of Daniel and this was the prediction of how an Assyrian king in 180 BC would uh, invade and take over the temple and would offer swine on the altar and turn it into a pagan shrine. This will happen again, says the Lord. It'll take a different form. It'll be the Roman armies destroying the place utterly and treating it shamefully. When you shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, and so on, let the reader understand. Then let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains. This is a message to Christian people who were living in Jerusalem and around in Judea at the time of the Roman invasion in AD 70. When you see these things, flee. Flee where? To what mountains? We don't know, but the best guess is flee south. Southeast, through the region of the Dead Sea and down to where, to as far as the mountains where there are many, many caves and places where you can be. At any rate, there is testimony that that's where they went in AD 70. And don't hesitate, verse 15, let him that is on the housetop not go down into the house. Anyone in Jerusalem or nearby fortified cities, don't go back for anything. You know, you can see it. If the aircraft is in trouble and crash landing, don't reach up to the luggage locker, get out. Flee from Jerusalem. Verse 16, let him that is in the field not turn back for a garment. And verse 17, this seems to me to say, have special care to your, for your mothers to be and your nursing mothers. It'll be terrible for them because you've got to move at great speed, take every care of them. 
Pray ye that your flight be not in the winter. You don't know when it's going to happen. These are instructions for that generation of believers. Verse 19, for in those days, and this applies not only to them, but this will be repeated when the Lord returns. For in those days shall be affliction, such as was not from the beginning of the creation, which God created unto this time. Verse 20, and except that the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh should be saved. Unless the Lord had brought that Roman horror to a standstill quickly, everybody would be killed. There would be no Jews left. They would all have been destroyed and massacred. And God in his mercy was going to preserve a remnant even then. While the temple would be destroyed and the special Jewish era of privilege would be brought to an end and the national covenant with that nation, it was still in the will of God that many individual Jews throughout the centuries would be saved. They would, of course, come in to the Jewish-Christian, Jewish-Gentile-Christian church. We would be all together. We would be all one in Christ Jesus. But God knew exactly how many Jews there would be saved and that he would keep that nation distinct to the end of time. And look at the words in verse 20. For the elect's sake might only be a minority of the whole group, but for the sake of those Jews who would be saved down the centuries, the nation was not entirely obliterated. The destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Verse 23, take ye heed. Oh, dear friends, be vigilant. Throughout time, Christian people need to be vigilant. In the 19th century, we Baptists had a Baptist union in this country that was extremely large and included Baptists all over the country. There were many, many more Baptist churches in the country in those days than there are now. And they all believed the word. And most of them not only believed the word, but most of them were Calvinistic Baptists who believed in gospel preaching, the free offer of salvation, and the doctrines of grace together. And through most of the 19th century, the Baptist Union was a pretty sound body. It had its problems. But towards the end of the 19th century, the 1870s, 1880s, biblical criticism and theological liberalism started to come into the Union where the inspiration and infallibility of the Bible was no longer believed. And it came, first of all, into some of the seminaries. And then it infected the ministry 
and ministers were coming into the denomination and teachers who were denying essentials. Many ministers towards the end of the century didn't believe in penal substitution. That Christ suffered and died an atoning substitutionary death bearing away the punishment and the guilt of his people. They didn't believe that. Oh, God wouldn't be so cruel as to so afflict his son. They didn't want penal substitution. The heart of the gospel was taken away and thrown away. How did it happen? Some people protested. Famously, C.H. Spurgeon came out and his church in 1887 and left the Union. And a whole string of others did too. But the majority of people in the Union, even many of Spurgeon's students, they couldn't see it. Yes, but this is our denomination. People believe and love the word. Yes, there are some people who uh, uh, we must oppose, but uh, by and large, but the Union wouldn't expel error. And so it was in trouble. And as time went by, liberalism took over most of it. Now there are very few true evangelicals left in the Baptist Union. Now it is by and large a liberal denomination, and it's going the way of all liberal denominations. Women ministers everything. No longer does it stand where it once stood. But when I was a youngster and saved and in a Baptist Union church as a teenager, I remember that uh, there the secretary, and it was quite a sound church, the secretary of the church would get up and say, oh, we are sending messengers to our beloved denomination's annual assembly. They knew there were troubles, but they wouldn't face it. They didn't want difficulty. They didn't want to lose the romance of imagined soundness. So they didn't watch. They were not vigilant. They didn't protect the denominations and the faith. They didn't contend with the deathly errors that were coming in. That's what these verses are about. Watch says the Lord. Watch, be alert, be vigilant, always. Error stalks. The devil is attacking constantly. Take heed, verse 23. Behold, I have foretold you all things. But now, the first mountain peak, the destruction of Jerusalem, now look, we're on to the second Verse 24, in those days, in these coming days, in these days, after that tribulation, when everybody will be against us, just as they were against the early Christians before the destruction of Jerusalem, in those days after that tribulation, the sun shall be darkened, cosmic disturbances And the moon shall not give her light, and the stars of heaven shall fall, and the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken. There'll be astonishing disturbances. 
and it'll be unmistakable to, to Christians, well, the wars have got worse, the threats have got worse, the opposition to Christians has got worse, they're now legalizing sin and making it criminal to be a Christian standing for the morality of the Bible. Things get worse and worse. Famines, pestilences are more prevalent. But then the unmistakable sign, the cosmic disturbances. And verse 26, Then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Oh, beyond our capacity to describe the glory of Christ, the glorified Lord, when he shall appear. Then shall he send his angels and shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from the uttermost parts of the earth to the uttermost parts of heaven, the skies. Verse 28, now learn a parable of the fig tree. When her branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. We can read some of the signs. The end is surely near. The cosmic disturbance is not yet. But they could happen at any time. Maybe ten years' time. Maybe five years' time. Maybe this year. So ye in like manner, when ye shall see these things come to pass, know that he is nigh, even at the doors. We today surely can live in that spirit more than any in past generations. Intriguing verse. It must have puzzled you. Verse 30. Verily I say unto you, that this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. The first possible meaning of that verse is that everything that the Lord speaks of shall happen while the people who heard him were still alive. Well, that is clearly not the sense of the passage because all these things have not happened yet, let alone when the Lord spoke them. So it cannot have that meaning. Verily I say unto you that this generation shall not pass. A second meaning it may have is this. When the Lord says this generation, he is talking not about this generation, the people in front of him, but this generation that shall be alive when these things happen. But most people think that's very far-fetched. That's a very unnatural way of reading the passage. Verily I say unto you that this generation that shall be alive in the last days shall not pass. It's not only unnatural... You say, why say it? That's pretty obvious that the generation who live to see these things will not pass until they happen. Nothing is said. So that can't be the meaning either. 
Another possible meaning is this, that people from this present generation, representatives of the generation who were hearing the Lord, would see the beginning of it all happening. Well, that is possible, and that's a very popular traditional interpretation because the people who heard him, there were those who would still be alive in AD 70. This is 35 to 40 years before, before the destruction of Jerusalem. Some people in that generation would still be alive. They'd see the first mountain peak of prophecy, the destruction of Jerusalem. They'd see the beginning of all these events and the gospel age come in which would be begun with the destruction of Jerusalem and end with the return of the Lord. So you could say that's a valid interpretation. And that's certainly the most popular interpretation among Reformed exegetes. But there's another one which is held by Reformed exegetes, the fourth one, and it is this, that the word this generation doesn't mean this group of people currently alive, this age group. We speak of generations. In the Bible, we speak of the wilderness generation, the people who were alive then, that group of people. They lived in that 40-year period. Today, we speak loosely of this generation, that generation, meaning younger people, older people, middle-aged people, old people. We divide people alive into broadly into generations. But it doesn't have that meaning here at all because actually the word, Greek word translated generation is the word that simply means kin, ethnic group, nation, ethnic nation. Family. That's what it literally means. And often in the Bible, it's stretched to mean group of people living. But its literal sense is kin. And it's used four times in the New Testament in that sense. Kin. It has that meaning. And maybe this is one of them. In which case, the meaning of the verse would be this. Verily I say unto you that this ethnic group, this kin, this family, the Jews, of course, verily I say unto you that Israelites shall not pass till all these things be done. Now that's a different meaning. There'll always be Israelites to the end of time as a distinct nation. That's actually very surprising. Usually in olden times, when a smaller nation was overrun by a larger nation and massacred and obliterated, it disappeared. And such people who were left got merged into the different nations. And that group, that family of people, vanished. But this would then be saying that the Jewish people will be preserved until all the events 
have been witnessed by them. doesn't mean they'll all be saved, but they'll be preserved to see these things. Verily, assuredly, I say unto you that this generation, this nation, the Jewish people, shall not pass. It's, it would be fitting for the Lord to say that. All this talk about the destruction of Jerusalem and the terrible suffering, is our nation going to disappear? No. It will not pass until both mountain peaks of prophecy have been accomplished. That's a possible meaning. So just to confuse you, I've given you two credible meanings. And both the latter two meanings are attractive. But I can't tell you definitely which one is correct. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Verse 32, quickly, of the, that day and that hour, the coming of the Lord, knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son. We're viewing the Son in his humanity, obviously. He is God and he is man. But he has chosen to make this one of the things he will not remember or be aware of, even though he knows all things on earth. One of the things he has chosen not to know when he lives as a man is the end of the age and its date and its time. Of course, in his Godhead, he knows it. This is a great mystery. But, uh, you know, if Christ knew absolutely everything, which he did as God, but if he knew everything in his humanity... He could not be our perfect representative because there's one thing, one virtue, he wouldn't be able to exercise. And that virtue would be faith because he would have perfect sight and he would know absolutely everything. He would not need faith. But he's living a perfect life as our representative. He's got to be the perfect man. He's got to be in our place and earn heaven for us. So there, are some th there is something or some things he must choose in his divine power to shut out of his humanity so that he has faith and exercises it on our behalf to earn heaven for us. His atonement takes away our sin. His perfect life secures heaven. But the summing up, take ye heed, watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is.